Hey, welcome back to Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have a special guest, Victoria Melnikova. Did I get anywhere close to saying it right? That was perfect. That was perfect. Hi, everybody. It's great I, to be I here. I sometimes, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you did fine. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are and why we're yeah. so happy to have you here. Sure. Uh, hi, my name is Victoria. I work at Evil Martians, probably one of the best, you know, development teams in the world. Um, we um, create various dev tools, commercial open source, and just many great things. Um, I personally lead business development. So my official title is head of new business at Evil Martians. Very cool. Yeah, we, we got you on to talk a little bit about a couple of things. One is, I think we found you through the Dev Propulsion Labs that you put together. The video came out a few weeks ago. Um, and you talked about building communities around products. But you've also got this article in TechCrunch um, talking about commercializing open source. And I think we're going to start there. Um, do you kind of want to set the stage for us here? Because there are a lot of places to go from. And I think since you've kind of thought about this and written about this, you probably set us up pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I can set the stage a little bit and tell you about Evil Martians first, because I feel like mm -hmm. that's the kind of preface for all of this. So basically, we are a team of about 50 engineers. We're fully remote. And historically, we've been known for our contribution to Ruby on Rails kind of community. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, you know, open source is a big part of our belief system. We heavily rely on the principles of open source, like transparency, um, community, co-creation, things like that. And ultimately, we want to make the world better, like one product at a time. You know, it's, it's kind of like our internal uh, motto. Uh, and basically, we work with 20 to 30 startups a year. It's mainly technical startups at growth mm -hmm. stages. And we found that our sweet spot is actually developer tools and commercial open source. Since we have such big appreciation for open source, you know, as a philosophy, commercial open source kind of ties really well with that. So... Um, at some point, we we kind of found ourselves in a position where we accumulate information about developer tools, about commercial open source, how to do it right, and how to make it successful from day one. So um, at some point, I came up with an idea to create an article uncovering that because we personally have successfully launched uh, commercial open source projects, and we thought that mm -hmm. It's an area that not many people know about. Not many people talk about that. And actually not many people believe that open source can be commercialized because, you know, it's kind of like a controversial topic. It should be available for free. Like, how do you make money off, off of that? So uh, eventually, organically, we kind of arrived at a place where we want to share knowledge that we accumulated over the years. And that's how mm -hmm. the article came about. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of me setting the stage. <laughs> um, I can go a little bit into, you know, detail about commercial open source, like what it is, what does it mean? Like, how do you get there? Um, those are kind of the topics that I'd be happy to discuss with you guys. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Uh, how do you define commercial open source outside of just, you know, a company making money off of an open source project. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be more than just that, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And how do you, what what led you to like, oh, this is the holy grail? Well, and I want to just jump in here for a second because um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we see people get into open source for a variety of reasons. You know, sometimes they want to contribute to the community. Sometimes they um, they use it to get kind of a staff developer position at some company that's using their open source. Um, you know, they they kind of make their name, you know, people donate or sponsor them on GitHub. And so anyway, it's it's not this completely foreign idea, but then you get into some of yeah, some of the services out there that you can pay for. 
mm-hmm. they've got some open source basis, right? They either started as open source or they released an open source version of their software. And yeah, you know, they, they build these huge companies on them that make, you know, quite a bit of money. And so uh, that that's what I'm curious about is, yeah, you know, wh- what are the stages like um, and what are the approaches to that? Yeah, I want to kind of start from uh, the ending of my article, which is kind of like a, a go-to guide. How do you launch a successful commercial open source? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's a very interesting topic. And basically, I mean, developers want to solve problems, you know, and when you find a solution to a problem that actually exists, it makes you happy, you know, but it makes other people happy as well. Like the problem that they experienced is being solved. So I think the key to a successful commercial open source or actually any open source product is discovering the real pain point. And typically it happens during a project, you know, you're creating something, you run into an issue and you come up with a solution to it. So um, if you happen to come across something like that, it's probably a good place to discover whether it could become something bigger. And how do you discover that is you talk to other engineers, you know, you see what is, is this a problem they also experiencing? Um so you go on Twitter, you go on Hacker News, you explore what's in Quora or some other places, you know, like what do people talk, like what do people say about this problem? And mm-hmm. if you find that this is a common problem that doesn't have an ad- adequate solution to it, you create one. And the best part about it, it can exist outside of your project, you know, that you initially designed it for because then you kind of isolate it and create a product out of that. So if you have that product mentality, if you have that startup kind of approach, of creating solutions to real problems people experience, then you're on the right track. And then um, once you kind of define that, uh, there is a way to make it uh, actually, you know, commercial. Uh, And how do you make it commercial? You start working on it like if it was a real product, you know, a separate like commercial product. You devote time to it, let's say 10 hours a week is your commitment, and you set adequate goals for yourself. What do you want? Do you want to get stars on GitHub? Do you want to get adoption? Do you want people to talk about this product? Mm -hmm. And you kind of, uh, it's kind of like setting smart goals, you know, Um, something measurable, something adequate. Um, Basically, uh, you assign a metric and you try to achieve it in a certain amount of time. And let's say you give yourself three months. 10 hours per week, you set certain goals and you try to achieve it. You speak with other engineers, you get feedback, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you grow an open source project. Uh, and at some point, um, you can, you know, understand like what do people actually need? You can kind of define what could be the core of this open source that could be forever free. You know, something like, for example, if I translate this onto you know, Martian projects, products that we've created, mm-hmm. let's take image proxy. Image proxy is an image optimization tool. It optimizes images on the fly. So image optimization is something that we will forever offer for free. You know, it's an open source tool. But then we have some additional features that we can charge for, you know, because they take a little bit more work. They take a little bit more configuration, whatever it could be. So once you define that core, then you, you can create a legend page. You can define what could be those additional paid features and try selling them, you know, see what people mm-hmm. are ready to pay for it. Other people that ready to pay for it. Right. Because a lot of the times, you know, successful open source projects uh, solve very niche problem and people are experiencing such big pain that they're ready to pay for it. At the same right. time, there are some big, like let's take PostCSS, you know, it's a very famous kind of open source project but it's actually free forever. It's going to be forever free because it's seen, it's viewed as a part of the ecosystem. Like nobody thinks of it as something that you should pay for, right? So uh, there is that very, uh, I'm again coming back to the idea that solving a real niche problem is actually the key to success. So if you're able to define that, you're able to meet your goals, you know, the metrics you set uh, for yourself, you're able to get paying customers, like people that are actually willing to pay for it. 
mm-hmm. you're you're doing really well. <laughs> you're probably you know uh, on the way to to success. And then you can play with different monetization strategies. You can play with different pricing because you you own the project. You know you can uh, right. kind of decide what's happening with it afterwards. And then if you think about it, like that whole idea of commercializing open source. Uh, there is nothing to be ashamed of because you're competing with SaaS. You know, you're competing with other projects that are well-financed. Most of the time they have, you know, they're VC-backed, they have raised rounds, and they're able to hire a team that can outcompete your project. So at the end of the day, it's about delivering a better product, you know, and kind of providing resources for your team to create something that's able to compete with, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the c competition, basically. And at the end of the day, you're making your product better, you know, and that's what matters. So um, even though open source is about the free, you know, good that is shared by community, there is a reason why, um, you know, it requires resources you know, um, and monetizing open source is one of the sustainable ways to do it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen a couple of different models of this, like Sidekick, for example, Um, you know, which is something that that most Rubyists are pretty familiar with. Yeah, right. Um, And yeah, you know, you can get uh, Sidekick. I think it's Pro and Sidekick Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And right? You get added features, but Sidekick is useful. It, you know, it, it does a great job. Exactly. Yeah, I used Sidekick for years without paying. And now I, I work at a bigger company that pays for Sidekick Pro. And yep. it, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. And I, I was going to comment about it, like Mike Perham's like, because that's where I first remember even the term commercial open source, right? Where, you know, he was there and he had this project and he wanted to work on it all the time and he just started a new gem with a new feature that lots of people were, you know, recreating <laughs> and just made right. it integrated and you know, people paid you know, the small amount that he started with. And mm-hmm. now it's just like, it makes so much sense. And the core product is just small and super focused and anything extra is, you know, you can build it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yep. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I guess, my biggest concern always is like licensing. It seems to be like mm-hmm. the nightmarish thing preventing anybody from wanting to monetize anything open source. Uh, mm-hmm. And what is, what's your approach to that? And like, how do you maybe put those worries behind you while you're like trying to commercialize something? Yeah, we just hire professionals to do it. You know, <laughs> they're legal professionals <laughs> that do it really well. And I mean, I'm a big believer in kind of like um, mastering what you do best. You know, so I'm not going to, you know, take on this huge responsibility of trying to figure out licensing myself when I can hire somebody who can do it really well, you know. So, and I think that uh, there's so many professionals out there that that can do it for a reasonable price, to be honest, like in comparison to uh, potential losses that you can, you know, (laughs) have from it. So, and right now... I mean, I know that Image Proxy, for example, has the MIT license and it works really well for us. And yeah, I have not much to say about licensing in general, but well, I would advise you all to, <laughs> to, consult you know, a to seek legal, <laughs> legal help. Yeah. Right. But it seems like there are two things because when um, Valentino said licensing, what I was thinking was how do you manage all of the licenses, right? So yeah. the subscriptions or, you know, that maybe they buy a lifetime license or something like yeah. that. And then usually there's some kind of logic in the code that says, you know, you got the pro version. I'm going to validate your license before I run anything, right? And so, you know, is is there a system that helps you manage that kind of a thing? Or, because, yeah, I'm not going to write the license agreement myself. I'm going to hire an attorney. Yeah, but um, for the the rest of it, yeah, it's like, okay, how do I manage all this stuff so that it's like, you know, your license is no longer valid, the software no longer works. Um, yeah, there are ways to track like whether people are using 
like for image proxy, for example, there is license server that, you know, like sees right. whether people are using ProVersion adequately. So there are ways like engineering, you know, uh, mechanisms to make sure that uh, it's not being abused. And of course, you want to mm-hmm. make sure that you probably at early stages, it might happen and you will not even know about that, you know, because right. one of the things about open source and commercial open source um, as well is you lack analytics. You actually don't know how many people use your project. You know, we don't know mm-hmm. the real number of people using image proxy to date. We don't know the exact people, the exact number of people using PostCSS. We can predict that it's millions, but we don't know. Um, so there are certain things that you can, you know, employ to make sure that you are protected, that your software is not being abused. Uh, and eventually you will get there. But I feel like at initial stages, just adoption, you know, is probably more important, you know. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but I tried. <laughs> kind of. No, it's fine. Um, I mean, one way or the other, you're either going to build it or buy it. And, yeah, uh, you know, I was just wondering if there was like some commercial product out there that was like, hey, we manage software licenses for companies. Yeah. Or- yeah, I wish. I mean, there are ways to do it. And if you think about like, let's say Image Proxy has an annual subscription model. Mm-hmm. So every year you just renew your license. And I think for us, it works really well, especially, you know, at early stages of a commercial product, because it's easy to, you don't have that many customers, right? You can do it manually. You don't even have to use like any advanced right. software to do billing or whatever. You use Stripe, you issue your invoices. It's pretty manageable. You know, as you grow, of course, you have to adapt and you have to explore new, um, you know, it becomes a real business. So it could be a department right in that area, you Mm -hmm. know, in the future. But if we talk about early stages, there are ways to uh, promote yours and sell your software through marketplaces like Amazon Marketplace or, you know, Google Cloud Marketplace, Mm -hmm. which is a bit tough to get into because you have to like purchase a lot of uh, storage, you know, to do that. But um, there are ways to kind of securely promote your product uh, and still get revenue from that. Um, And sometimes like, for example, AppSumo is something where you sell like a lifetime subscription Mm -hmm. for a very low price, which also, you know, it it could help at early stages for adoption because people get to know about your product, they get to use your product. And Fortunately, engineering community is so vocal. If they like something, they will talk about it, you know, and it could bring you many more customers down the line. So you kind of weigh different options and see what works best for you. Um, If we talk about like monetization strategies, there are a few actually. So the the most basic one in open source is donations, right? You get sponsors, you get people that are just paying you money because they love your product and, you know, but in reality, it's not that much. Like, um, I actually gave an example of like PostCSS. In a year, it gets about $12,000 in donations, which is not that much. Like, it's not even enough to sustain one person building it. You know, I'm not talking about a team. So it's pretty tough to do that. But then you have other uh, kind of strategies, which could be consulting and support. You know, when uh, you basically need the author of the open source to help you install it and help you, you know, run it on your specific project. Uh, Then you have the SaaS approach, which is a little bit more uh, self-sustained, I want to say. And yeah, you just have to experiment with it and see what works best for you. So, Would you say that that's a, a project by project basis? Or have you found like building a framework around specific pathways is better? Um, it's interesting because we don't have that much experience. So it's we're talking about dozens, dozens of projects, right? It's not hundreds. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to say. But uh, AnyCable, for example, another project of ours, it's also a commercial open source. It runs on the consulting and support uh, basis, you know, because it's so configurable. You have to uh, have like a niche specialist, you know, help you uh, install it. Yeah. Um, and uh, image proxy, on the other hand, is pretty self-sustainable. So, um, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. It's kind of varies by project, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I think, you know, where you're talking about some of these dev tools like any cable, um, it, it, you know, it looks like it's more infrastructure based. Yeah, that you're, you're doing setup on. So yeah, um, I think that falls more toward, like you said, the setup or support. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've seen other companies and other people do the same kind of thing. Uh, Tidelift's one that comes to mind that, you know, they basically hire the people who are maintaining the open source to support it, right? Yeah. So they're getting paid for their time that they spend helping people get it running and set up. But, uh, and, and that's the service, right? That's how they get paid. But exactly. Uh, yeah. then you've got others, like you said, the SaaS setup. One that comes to mind there is Discourse, right? Yep. So I've set up Discourse on I don't even know how many servers, right? Um, I've, I've built plugins for people and, you know, it's cool software. But, you know, if you don't want to hassle with maintaining your own server or hiring somebody like me to keep an eye on it for you, then it might be worth the hundred bucks a month for the base package at discourse.org, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how they make their money. And it it makes a lot of sense, right? Because yeah. the, the pricing that they're offering, I mean, a hundred bucks a month is way cheaper than hiring somebody like me. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, if we talk about like any cable, for example, specifically, it's a scalable WebSocket infrastructure for Rails apps. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a, tough thing to crack you know but if you think about like how it translates to your uh like how it translates to revenue it brought over one million dollars of consulting revenue for able margins so it works very much in hand with what we do as a consultancy you know as a web development shop so for Mm -hmm. us this model works really well whether uh, if you take image proxy um i think the most kind of common scenario is when we do something specific for enterprise clients but not so much for just, you know, pro version because it's like, it's good out of the box. Like people just take it right. and run with it. So, yeah. Yeah, very cool. So let's say that I have some genius idea for some app that I, you know, or some open source that I want to build, right? So it's, you know, I don't even know what I would build, right? But let's just say that I'm going to build something. How do I start evaluating and saying, okay, um, do I want to go the donations route? Do I want to go mm-hmm. the pro product route? Do I want to go with the installation and maintenance, you know, kind of contract client route or host it as a SaaS route? Like, how do you start to figure that out? And how do you validate that it's actually even going to work and make you any money? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so first of all, I think, as I mentioned before, kind of like startup mindset very much applies here. So having that product mindset uh, will help. So getting feedback in cheap ways is your best friend. You know, mm-hmm. the, the more feedback you receive, the faster you can act on it, the better for your product. So I would say that technical marketing and, you know, a commu- like a developer community are your best friends in this. So... Uh, you know, right now it's very like popular approach to build in public, you know, and people Mm -hmm. are very, they want to take part in this. They want to comment on how it's going, you know, so growing that fan base or just people that um, want to solve this problem together with you is really important, you know, and uh, when you see that response from, uh, from your audience, which could be GitHub stars, it could be just people being very active on your Twitter, you know, people being active and committing like uh, mm-hmm. PRs or whatever it is, you know. If you see that there is demand, probably it's time to consider monetization. And you can try, like, there is no right answer here. You have to try many different things. And once again, you have to run it in like fast iterations that don't cost you much. So you can go on Twitter and say, hey, I'm thinking about launching this feature, but it, it's going to be paid. You know, it's not going to be free. Would you guys be willing to spend five bucks on it? You know, just actually getting real opinions from people that are um, using your product. Um, and I think that's the best way to kind of evaluate whether um, it's possible to monetize at all. Because, I mean, chances are 
it's not possible. Sometimes it happens, you know, sometimes it happens like that, that you can't actually make money off an open source. And then you're just stuck in the donations world, you know, but which is not the, be- the, the worst thing either, especially when you grow a big community and the community is kind of self-sustaining the, the product. So, um, yeah, it kind of varies case by case. And I think when you find that product fit, you actually know because there are people demanding more. Like they want to get better features. They want to be the app to be more performant or whatever it is, you know. And um, if you're able to work with that feedback, uh, you should be able to find a way to monetize um, the project itself. Yeah, you know, this, this makes me think a lot about like, maintenance of a project like a, a lot of open source projects just like get created even if they become popular they just like fall out from people lack you know lack of maintenance yeah and to me that's been one thing that's saved you know a lot of projects or even helped convert them into like commercialized opportunities is that they were well maintained uh, and people like to support things that are well maintained and that they have very little issue working with all the time. Me personally, mm-hmm. I, I'll go and if I'm selecting a project, I'll look to see how well it maintained it is right away, right? Like, because yeah. mm-hmm. I know that's what I'm going to have to do. And I mean, Evil Martians is great because I know like most of those are going to be very well maintained and I can go in and use it. And it, it does, it helps me think about Evil Martians for, oh, hey, we need this product. Like, let's just hire them to get in and, you know, set it up right because we know they would because you know, they know what they're doing because it shows. And I mean, outside of consulting, even, I feel like uh, if you have an open source project and it's well-maintained, I feel like you would get more donations from mm-hmm. having from having done that and notoriety. And I feel like that, that kind of does seem to be like a trigger <laughs> for projects to like get that funding flow. And I, sure. I'm curious though, like, how do you get there, right? How do you not just like, kill your team or, or mm-hmm. yourself, like getting it to a point of, okay, it's a well-oiled machine. Like, uh, it, you know, it's, it's going to work itself out and we, now we can like get there. Right. And, and like, when do you just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to kill this project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That actually makes me want to segue to the deaf propulsion labs, because that's something that we touched on there because, um, like, Uh, Burnout in the open source world is real. Like people are burning out, you know, it's, it's a tough job to have. And especially, so I want to say that, um, uh, when you have that kind of like, um, that project that moves you, you know, moves you every day, like you wake up thinking about it, like how you're going to make it better, how you want to talk about it. It's a good sign. Uh, you can always um, kind of um, bring up leaders in your community that will be helping you, you know, because like uh, you can basically raise champions in your community that would be educating younger guys. And this way it's going to become like this perpetual machine, you know, where people are always contributing, people are always uh, trying to sustain the project. Uh, and I think it's very important to identify signs of burning out early on, like the earlier, you know, about it, the better. And sometimes it's a good idea to just take it behind the barn and like kill it, you know, because it's not going to do any good to you. It's not going to do any good to anybody if it's too difficult, you know? Um, and I find that a lot of the times people are too afraid to do it and it takes forever. And in the end, it still happens, you know. So um, I'm a big believer that you should be passionate about what you're doing. And that's going to be like the key uh, success, you know, uh, the key to success in this situation. But also just growing your developer community around your project and making sure it's not only on you, but it's a community thing and actually being prepared for a situation where when your community wants something different than you, you know, in, uh, so in the deaf propulsion labs, we had this conversation about burnout and how to manage community. And one of the ideas was, um, you have to be kind of like a good parent to your community when you don't project your desires onto it, but you allow it, you allow it to kind of 
bloom and flourish on its own and like try to achieve their own goals. And you're kind of like standing aside and just supporting them through the process and guiding them, you know, uh, to make the product better in the end. So yeah, burnout is real. Uh, you have to be very kind of mindful of how you feel, where you're at with the project. It helps to have a strategy. It helps to have measurable metrics. Uh, it helps to monetize as early as possible because it's going to be your motivation. You can hire a team, a professional team that can help you in this path. So just keeping like your head clear, staying inspired, talking to your audience is going to help. So. Yeah, you know, you talked about uh, AppSumo and uh, I forget his last name, but the the guy that used to run it, Noah, I don't know if he still does, mm-hmm. but uh, he used to have these workshops where you would Noah go Kagan. and... Yeah, Noah Kagan. And he had these workshops where you'd go and you would try and sell something that you came up with on, on Craigslist. And you would basically just like put an ad up and cold call people with your service that didn't exist yet. And see if you got anybody <laughs> to buy it, you know, and like, that's a good that strategy. Was, you know, it was just a way to like get you to thinking like, is it viable? Like, would anybody seriously pay for it? Right. Mm-hmm. Can I explain and, uh, to somebody why they want it? <laughs> exactly. If you like, if, if you can't, like it, it, it was like, I, I never did it personally, but I just heard this feedback from people where they had gone through it and they were just like, it's incredible. Just like trying to sell something because you realize immediately whether or not it's sellable. Right. Like right. if you if you're talking to somebody and they, they instantly don't get it, like obviously there's not a, a market fit, at least for that kind of person that you're yeah. talking to. And if you've targeted that person as the person that you think is going to fit, then, okay, well, let's abandon this thing. Right. And then at least you haven't done anything. You've just made a Craigslist ad. Right. Like, yeah, uh, that's actually a good idea to to test uh, your hypothesis in very in a very cheap and fast way. Like and Twitter is great for that actually, but Craigslist could work too. Maybe not. I, I'm I'm too old. <laughs> Twitter is uh, definitely helpful. Yeah, Mastodon. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah, I'm wondering if if uh, you know if there's any uh, different ways that you guys do like testing out market fit or have different strategies like that, where you you think you have an idea for something that you want to start working on. Like, how do you choose? Like, do you already, do people like engineers at Evil Marshals already have these ideas and they're ready just to like start working on it? Or is it more of like a longer process of, all right, let's see what things evolve and then we'll jump on it when we're, when the opportunity's right. Yeah, there. I feel like I find that there are two different situations happening. The first one is when uh, there is an actual problem on an actual project and we have solved it successfully. So Image Proxy, one of those. And at that time, we were working on this big uh, project for eBay. There were a lot of like resizes and, you know, just images that needed optimization. And we felt that nothing on the market solves the problem in an adequate way. So we created this thing and it works wonders, you know, and we know in our hearts that it's a very performant tool, but it's also useful. You know, it's great. Uh, it, it's great for any product with user-generated content. Um, and that's one scenario, you know, and it's very sustainable, organic, great. The other one is a little bit different when, so we have, let's let's take the OKLCH uh, situation, right? We have Andre Sidnik, who is, I think, one of the best front-end engineers in the world, right? And he kind of, he can predict certain trends you know, he can predict, he sees certain uh, new technology arising and he can, because he know, he has so much knowledge and he sees many projects, he knows what's going on. He kind of, he can uh, anticipate the wave, you know, and uh, like with OKLCH colors, he kind of anticipated it before it was available in browsers, you know, and it's what I call like push on the envelope. You know, it's kind of like running on the edge of technology and just being there before everybody else. And that one is a tricky spot because you can't really know for sure that it's going to play out. You know, you know, um, it's 50-50 actually, you know, Mm -hmm. it might not play um, and you have to be ready for that. So um, in this situation, I think that now OKLCH is getting more traction and it's kind of like, 
since it was launched in like uh, CSS, it's become more popular. But in the beginning, it was a tough job trying to raise awareness of that, you know? Uh, so I feel like in general, it's kind of two things. One, when you just create a very performant and great, a great tool and you can share it with everybody. And the other one is when you're trying to create something new when there was nothing before. And that one is a tricky one. Yeah, it's interesting talking about... Because um, I've, I've done that on some stuff, right? Where I had an idea. I mean, I didn't capitalize on it, but I had an idea, you know, working on a client project or something like that, where it's like, hey, I've solved this problem like nine times, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. There, you know, there's some space out there for it, right? All I have to do is put it in terms that the client you know, needs and then go, hey, you know, here's a shortcut, just use my code. Um, But yeah, you know, running at the edge of technology, you know, being out there in front. I mean, yeah, sometimes that works out really well, you know, if if you've got a good eye for how things are going. But even then, sometimes somebody will come in at the last minute with a completely different solution. And, you know, the, the whole industry turns and you're like, well, I was ready for you to go here instead. So... Yeah, yeah, I can see that being a little scary. It is scary. And a a similar thing was with variable fonts. Like we were also kind of like promoting it heavily before it was a thing in Figma, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you have to be ready for, like it takes a certain type of character to feel great in that situation, you know, because you're dealing with extremely high levels of uncertainty and you have to be kind of like sure in yourself, confident that you are doing the right thing, you know? And it's a tough job. It's a tough job. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, my my biggest fear is, you know, creating something and then, oh, some big company just comes out with the same thing. And, yeah. you know, Sabasha is my whole thing. Uh, but, I mean, that brings me back to your whole dev compulsion labs and, like, kind of building communities, right? Because, I mean, yeah. that definitely is what has kept Rails alive all these years, really, yeah. is, like, that building of the community around yeah. it. Because, uh, yeah. I mean, there's been so many other frameworks, uh, you know, that are were very similar that, you know, could have competed and just fell out over the kind of lack of, you know, community and, and people supporting it. So I'm, I, I was super interested when I saw like the building community communities aspect. Yeah. Uh, right. And so like, how, how do you like overcome that fear of, okay, like my community building is going to be effective enough that I'm not going to need to worry about whatever else comes and competes with it. And I can mm-hmm. still feel confident that I'm, I'm still doing something that I can be excited about. Right. Like, cause I feel like that's one thing everybody with burnout faces is okay. Like just defeatism, right? I've been defeated. Like sure. Like I have people using this, but are they using it? Like, do I have the community around me still? Like, and sure you might get one off Mm -hmm. like pull requests or something like that. But how do you like continue to like feel excited for that community and like keep that going? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to take a step back here a little bit. And I want to talk about Dev propulsion labs as you know, as a phenomena, like what it is. And then I'm going to dive into your question. So basically, as I mentioned before, we kind of found ourselves in a position where we have accumulated a bunch of knowledge about developer tools. And we thought it's a great opportunity to start sharing that content, you know, because uh, many of our clients kind of run into the same problems time and time again. And we're like, okay, but we have this knowledge and Maybe we can use some, you know, social media or whatever platforms to kind of spread, you know, spread the word. And the first topic that came to mind about developer tools was, of course, community building. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, basically what we did is we uh, invited, you know, DevRels and some other, uh, and like Andre Sitnik in this case, uh, to talk about what they do in their commercial products, you know, to make sure that their communities are sustainable and they're, they're actually helping business and not the other way around. And I have kind of like a selection of best practices. So I'd be happy to share those. Uh, um, I think that one of the biggest um, must-haves is only starting community when you are ready to commit to it. Because a community is not something that you can turn on and off. Like it's, 
you know, it's people, they have expectations and they have things to say and uh, developer communities are vocal, not only in a positive way, but also in a negative way. You know, when something goes wrong, everybody talks about it, maybe even more so than when they're happy about some tool, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, one of the, I think, best practices is to start a community when you are ready to show up and to act on feedback, right? So it's almost like a full-time job. And ideally it is a full-time job, you know? Uh, So there are like special people that can take care of a community in a very kind of sustainable way. Um, Another thing is that you can give your community uh, a voice in decision-making. So you can implement certain uh, mechanics uh, to allow your community to move your product forward. So you, you might have a roadmap, but they might also have something that they need, you know? So you need to have those tools to collect feedback and actually uh, process it and create something, on, you know, um, on top of it. Uh, another thing is breaking barriers to participation because I feel like in many communities, uh, senior developers, senior engineers are very praised and, you know, new, like new, newer engineers are a little bit shy. So if you have a safe space for younger, less experienced engineers to speak up, to experiment, to propose something, you're on in a much better place than if it was otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, you are kind of like... Mm, you can't heavily rely on seniors all the time. You must have like fresh, uh, you know, ideas um, and just fresh energy in your community flowing. Um, and those people are going to grow into seniors eventually, you know. So it's kind of like this launching this perpetual uh, engine that will be sustaining your product, your project uh, like for a long time. And so. Just yeah. real quick, I, I'm yeah. curious what that looks like because I, I feel like that is done wrong in so many projects. Uh, and in so many companies. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's a it's a common one for sure where uh, how do you let new feedback like make its way in without being like, well, that's not the direction we want to take with every single request. Yeah, um, I mean, you have to take all the feedback with a grain of salt. And as I mentioned before, you do have your product roadmap, right? Like you have a certain strategy for your product most of the time. So not necessarily, like uh, user's feedback doesn't necessarily define what's the next step in the product is, you know. We can ask Docker to just do everything for free. It's not something that they're going to do, you know. Uh, so I think very, like it takes a skillful uh, DevRel, you know, to make sure that people are rewarded for their feedback, but don't necessarily think that it's going to, yeah, you know, like it's about setting expectations in a way, like you always under promise and over deliver. And that's, I feel like the recipe for success in many (laughs) industries, not just in developer tools, you know, but making sure that the expectations are aligned, making sure that you are delivering on your words. Like when you promise something, you actually deliver something. Mm -hmm. You know, having uh, that commitment, having that transparency in your building, like, you know, now, as I mentioned, it's common to uh, build products in public, but having that transparency and like true connection, like, look, guys, we're doing our best. We're trying to make this product better. We have these ideas, like, help us, you know, make it, um, uh, help us kind of like execute on those, you know, and I feel like that's a perfect scenario when your community becomes your partner in a way, you know, and helps you achieve your goals instead of like being in the way of it. Um, And there's some ways to kind of, you know, incentivize people to do that. Like, uh, I don't know, uh, collectibles, plushies, like all kinds of ways. Or even, you know, having that really nice open source um, item on your resume uh, those could be really nice rewards for, you know, mm-hmm. leaders in your community. So, um, yeah, another important thing is kind of not allowing community to become toxic and, uh, you know, being able to kind of identify toxicity and eliminating it early on, I feel like it's super important. Um, and, um, yeah, just being transparent 
in terms of good news, but also bad news, you know, because you have to like, it's not all rainbows and puppies. Like sometimes things, you know, are hard. And um, I think that people actually love it when you share your hardships as well as your Mm -hmm. wins, you know, because we're all human at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. So just kind of like own up to it and you'll be fine. So Um, can I say something about that last point? Because I've seen this with a lot of stuff that I've done. I mean, granted, I've done some things that really ticked people off, right? And I've gotten blowback for it. But uh, a lot of times, if it's just a struggle, hey, this didn't go the way that I expected. This didn't work out the way that we wanted it to. We're, you know, we promised you we'd deliver this and then we haven't done it yet. Um, People are really good. I mean, you know, you get the couple of people that for whatever reason, they're just ticked off and they're, you know, I I just figure they're having a bad day, right? And so, you know, I I was the person that got blasted, right? When they Mm -hmm. had that bad day or bad week or they're going through something. But the vast majority of people, they're they're pulling for you. They're excited to to be involved. And if you can explain, hey, look, you know, yeah, you know, it it wound up taking me. I mean, even if it's just it wound up taking me longer to do than I thought it would, right? Not even, you know, I had a pet die or something. Um people are great and and they'll pull for you right as as long as you keep them apprised of what's going on mm-hmm. and and deliver you yeah. know yeah. anyway yeah i mean i totally agree yeah and you know sometimes like it's interesting because i i had two people mention the same community to me as one of the most accepting uh mm-hmm. they talked about astro community and they said that it's such a welcoming and nice community like they just go there to hang out and that's how you want your space to feel you know like just a place where everybody feels welcomed everybody feels great so uh i feel like we have something to learn um from any like from our competitors even in terms of how they're running their products and their communities you know uh so yeah creating that welcoming environment safe environment uh, diverse environment. Those are really important things for communities as well. And I feel like Ruby, I mean, as Valentina mentioned, Ruby is one of those places where it's a pretty tight-knit community. You know, people know each other. It's not that big of a community. It's kind of niche. So uh, when you're active in it, you become noticeable real fast. And, you know, um, especially when you be, when you're building something cool in public and you're doing it in a very authentic way, I feel like that's authenticity is also something that's really important. Like uh, Martians really love Superbase and I feel mm-hmm. like Superbase nail it. Like they do it's tech cool marketing tech. so well, so yeah. well. Like the memes and the articles, like all of it is so good. And actually, uh, Paul is going to be at our next uh, Dev Propulsion Labs, which is going to be on tech marketing specifically, you know? so Oh, nice. Yeah. And also we'll have Brad from Fly.io and Salma from Netlify. So it's really mm-hmm. like a star team to cover this topic, you know. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot more in the pipeline. We want to uncover different areas of developer tools. One of them was going to be documentation, which is like definitely a hot topic <laughs> that we need to, you know, talk about. But yeah, we've got great things in the pipeline. Yep. Yeah, it's really awesome. I love seeing all the, I mean, the big companies on there that are contributing. It's great. Uh, I mean, you're really organizing something. I think it's going to prove very valuable for a lot of people. And so hopefully that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to more for sure. Uh, and if you, if anybody listening out there hasn't watched this uh, first episode and you're thinking about building a, a you know, a product around developer tools, you got to check it out. Uh, it's really great. Uh, there's so mm-hmm. many things I picked up from building communities that I hope I get to try out <laughs> on yeah. some of my open projects. So, yeah, it's, it, You know, one of the goals of this project for us was to generate value for the community, you know, because uh, it's important for us to create open source projects, but it's also important for us to share knowledge. Maybe some of you have read our blog, which is called Martian Chronicles. Uh, you know, our engineers write a lot of technical articles great source of information. You know, there's a a ton of uh, articles on Ruby specifically, but also on other, you know, frameworks. 
Um, and we take it very seriously, you know, uh, just creating great content. So Deaf Propulsion Labs is, is the new one, the new generation um, of Martian content. All right. Well, was there something else that you wanted to talk about or? Um, yeah, I just have a little announcement, so to say. So we're launching um, OK LCH Color Picker and Converter on Product Hunt next week. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something new that we're trying out. Um, it's actually the, the tool itself was created by Andrei Sitnik and Roman Shaman. Roman is our head of design. He actually created, um, Martian Mono. It's mm -hmm. available on Google fonts. It's a great, great font to use, um, you know, in your utilities, so they came together and they created this awesome tool that allows you to use OKLCH colors uh, in browsers. So um, we're very excited about this launch and, you know, uh, we'd be happy to to see some support on Product Hunt, get those uploads uh, on the new tool. Um, and, um, you know, Andre is doing like a really big job just educating about OKLCH uh, mm -hmm. on his Twitter. So check it out if you don't know what it is. Uh, it's the, I think it's going to be the new standard of color on the web. So it's time to get, you know, educated on that technology. So Yeah, I, you know, I had never heard of this uh, before. Do, do you want to just give us a quick like TLDR? Of yeah. What yeah, basically, OKLCH okay, is a system, like a color space that's adapted to human eye uh, because, you know, color is kind of picked intuitively, you know, in the spectrum. Uh, and OKLCH okay, is kind of like a math approach to it where you can see um, different... Um, let me actually get specifically what it is. Like there are three... Um, Lightness, chroma, and hue are the different factors in the color. And you can actually mathematically de derive precise colors that would have the same contrast or even the same kind of harmonious family. You know, you can create like accent and danger colors that would have high contrast and would live in the same like color palette. So it's a tool that designers and front-end devs can use in their day-to-day -day life instead of, you know, RGB or hex colors. And that are a little bit more precise uh, and allow for better accessibility. So, yeah, that's the the gist of it. Yeah, I mean, as somebody cool. who's worked with red, green, blue for the longest time, I, I, <laughs> I I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that uh, you know there's got to be a better way. And uh, I mean, this is really cool. Uh, yeah, I, I've always wanted to be able to, you know truly use the the hue and saturation from yeah. CSS. <laughs> yeah. And it's always just been confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I'm excited to see where this goes. I'll, I'll be using it for sure to, to play with yeah. stuff. You should, you should check it out. It's, it's kind of unique because it's not like a regular 2D space of color. It has the 3D thing. And actually, like OKLCH uh, unlocks like 30% more colors on new displays. So on Retina, you have 30% more color, you know? So um, it allows for like more vibrant, like more precise hues. It's the P3 gamut. <laughs> All of those <laughs> color words that, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, this 3D map is super fun yeah. to play with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's definitely plenty to play with on the tool. I just yeah. have to say that my artistic ability leaves me in a space where I couldn't pick the right color to save my life. So <laughs> that's why you can use math. You know, you can just do yeah. mathematical, you know, precise yeah, you know, calculations. Funny. And in a lot of like, uh, you know, Raspberry Pi things where you have an LED and you want to like guess the color of the light, uh, it's always math, but it's always it's like, okay, well, we have this, uh, you know, hue, and then it just goes off the RGB, and then that's how you calculate it. It's mm -hmm. like, really, really <laughs> you, don't, you shouldn't be bit shifting, you know, red, yeah. green, blue. There's like better right. math that you could do to, to get the right color out of it. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm kind of interested to play on, on there and see how it works. Yeah. Uh, we'll be sharing, you know, uh, the product hand page on Twitter 
on the 6th of April, I think. And there will be some very clear examples of how to use it. Um, so I think those would be like really go to uh, for many engineers. All right. Well, I think this kind of opens us up to the um, self-promo segment of the show where it's, hey, what are you working on that people should know about? This sounds like a pretty cool tool. Uh, anything else you're working on that people should know about? Uh, no, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to San Francisco next week. Uh, I'm going, I'm going to the global conf from the startup grind. I don't know if you guys know about it. So if any of your listeners are there, you know, drop by, say hi, I'd be happy to, to meet you guys in person. So. Very cool. So is evil Martians going to be there or are you just going on your own? Just me. Okay. Just me. <laughs> cool. Uh, Valentino, what are you working on that people should know about? Uh, I'm working on storing uh, embedding calculations for <laughs> OpenAI's embedding. Uh, I'm working on turning basically through a bunch of data to try and gather context over just prompt engineering, injecting uh, context into prompts, which is how I've currently been using it. Uh, so it's super cool stuff where you can basically, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar, ChatGPT is what I'm talking about. Uh, and instead of providing like a page worth of text with context about what you wanted to do, uh, you could just use some calculations that you've previously calculated to help lead it toward where you want to ultimately go. Wow. And super interesting stuff. So uh, if you want to play around with that, check out, uh, there's a Paul Graham's essay mm -hmm. on uh, where he, Somebody made a chatbot to ask Paul Graham anything based on his essays. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Interesting. I love that. And so I they fed it. Yeah, so they fed in. Uh, they did embedding calculations on all his articles, and then now you can, you know, find your way and <laughs> talk talk to Paul Graham. That's pretty funny. We we love Paul Graham's essays. He's the best. He just nailed it. Yeah, super cool. Wow, ChatGPT yeah. is kind of scary. Like it's fascinating to the point when you're like. I just, I'm just speechless, you know. So I'm good. just waiting for the singularity that is um, all the new content out on the web was AI generated. And so yeah. it is now feeding off of itself. <laughs> anyway. Just infinite loop of chat. That's, that's right. Yeah. It's not getting smarter. It's just getting more. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so stuff I'm working on, um, I have a couple of things I just want to put out there really quickly. Um, one of them, we've talked to Amir Rajan about building games on this show. Um, on JavaScript Jabber, we talked about Phaser and building games in the browser. Um, but my son is really getting into video game development. He wants to do more stuff with like the Unity engine and stuff like that. And the other thing, so there were like three things that kind of lined this up and I'm going to try and keep this short. But uh, one of the other ones is, is I, I get asked probably on a weekly, semi-weekly basis um, why we don't have a video game development podcast. And so I have decided that I am going to fix that for everybody. And then, um, of course, then I can just get asked, why don't you have a better video game development podcast? But that'll be a different issue. Um, what I'm doing for the show, just to kick it off, and I'm probably going to start a panel show like this one as well. But initially, I'm just going to do a show with just me. Um, now, I am not a proficient game developer, but my friend Jason is, and he has a course. He has a, what is it, like a two or three month boot camp on how to build a video game. And he actually walks you through the process. And at the end, you have a functional video game. Now, you all build the same game, but you know, you learn all the things using Unity and C Sharp. So um, if you go buy his course, go to topendevs.com slash game dev. You can do that with or without the dash. Um, it'll take you to where you can buy his course. And then if you buy the course, you can join the Top End Devs Hub and there'll be a link on the website. That's something I'm updating this week. Um, and we're going to have weekly calls and work through the boot camp together. Okay. Now, I kind of get that some people are going to move faster than others, but we'll get on. And, you know, if I'm ahead of you, I'm happy to answer questions. If I'm not, then I can ask Jason and he can, you know, help me help you. But I kind of don't want to do this just in a vacuum and feel like I'm, you know, going off on some random 
direction. So anyway, if you want to do game development, go sign up. If you use the code, and this is the code he gave me. This is not the code that I asked him for. Uh, if you use the code JavaScript5, you'll get 20% off of the boot camp. And uh, yeah, just use that uh, top end devs link um, to, to get it. And then yeah, just join the hub and we will uh, join in the fun. Um, the other thing that I'm working on is I am working on... So uh, I, I get people getting on for coaching and typically what they're doing is they feel like they're stuck. Right, they're a junior developer most of the time. Junior to mid-level developer, they feel like they don't know how to move ahead, either to get paid more, to get more recognition, to work on more fulfilling stuff. Um, you know, their their boss is awful. I mean, all kinds of reasons, right? But the other thing is, is it's like, okay, so what do I need to learn? What do I need to be doing in order to grow and get ahead? Well, I have a system for you. So um, I'm starting a new podcast on that too. It's going to be catapult your coding career. And um, I'm going to release three episodes a week. They're going to be like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, one of them is going to be kind of general advice that works for juniors and seniors. The other is going to be for junior developers who are stuck. And the other one's going to be for senior developers who are kind of going, okay, what's next? Um, and we'll put that out every week. And then um, I'll have some premium content for that too, just like I will for the game dev stuff. Um, and so if you want to get more, you can get more. Um, but yeah, that, those are the things that I'm launching right now. So that's pretty awesome. It'll be it'll be way fun. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I love talking to people about this stuff. And then uh, I guess the last thing is is the book club. Um, starting next week, we're reading Darren Hardy's uh, The Compound Effect, and so that's just how you do small steps that compound into large changes. Work for you. Anyway, like I said, I was trying to keep it short and I failed. Um, let's do picks. Valentino, you have some picks? Uh, so my pick is uh, an Evil Martians blog post, which I just, I thought this was hilarious and kind of wild, wildly brilliant at the same time. Uh, but it's a basically a way to like bend Ruby so that it can read and execute Go code. <laughs> using uh, Ruby Next, which was was just a, a really well put together uh, post on uh, basically how to execute what would be otherwise compiled Go code. Uh, and but really more interesting to me was how to use Ruby Next, which is uh, a way to take advantage of features that are coming in future versions of Ruby uh, with uh, older versions of Ruby that you're using and. It, it was uh, really interesting, and I think everyone would get a kick out of this. Um, so I would go check that out. And I guess my second one is I got LASIK, which uh, <laughs> so far has been pretty incredible. Uh, <laughs> so I recommend that if uh, you are, are a candidate and able. Uh, so far, pretty mild of a process, but uh, yeah, that's it for me. Awesome. Um, I'll jump in with my picks. I've got a few of them. So the first one is, um, I always do a board game. This one is a board game, um, and it's tile placement. It's called Between Two Castles. Um, it's a Mad King Ludwig game. There are a couple of them. Um, but this one, what you do is you're actually between two castles. So you're building a castle on your right and a castle on your left. And so is the person next to you all the way around. So uh, basically... Um, the way that it works is you're collaborating with the person on your left to build the castle on your left. You're collaborating with the person on your right to build the castle on your right. And you want to build them as big as possible, right? And so you um, you look at the tiles in your hand, you take two, you assign one to one castle, one to the other castle, and then you get points based on what they're next to or what they're connected to or what they're in the same column as or the same row as or, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and anyway, it's it's really, really fascinating game. Uh, the way you win is your score is um, whatever the score is of your second highest castle, right? So your worst castle is the one that is your score. So if you and the person on your right built the best castle, then the, uh, the other castle that you have is your score and the other castle that he or she has is their score. 
And so it gets really interesting because effectively what you want to do is build up both castles as high as possible so that you have the second place castle as your sec- as your worst castle. Because the, the highest castle in the game is going to get knocked out for both people that built it. So um, it, it, it just made for an interesting play dynamic because usually you're trying to either do the best or, you know, sabotage other players or things like that. And there really isn't any of that. What it really boils down to is, is can I keep the parallel focus of both castles, you know, throughout the whole game and make it really pay off? So anyway, I really enjoyed that. Um, Another pick that I have is uh, my wife and I have been watching Star Trek Picard. And um, I don't know if I really love it because it has all the characters that I've loved for years or if it's actually good writing. I think it's some of both. Um, You know, I I don't know that the plot is always like mind-blowing, compelling, right? Which you kind of want. But they really do a good job of pulling in the nostalgia from the old uh, series from uh, uh, Next Generation, from Voyager. Um, I think they've had some characters from Deep Space Nine, and they've got some new characters in it too. And so it's it's been kind of fun and interesting to watch. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to pick that. And then the last pick that I have is, and this is for Valentino, um, it's it's Corey Hart's sunglasses at night, and so I'll put a link to the the, the YouTube video so that you can all watch it because yeah he's wearing sunglasses because he got his LASIK and I I just my my brain keeps playing it in my head and I think it's funny so anyway those are my picks uh, Victoria what are your picks uh, so I have two the first one is running. I did my first 5K last Saturday and I didn't even know I could do that. (laughs) And I did my second on Sunday and I was like, yep, I can do that. Wait, you did two? I did two in a row. Yeah, Saturday and Sunday. And I think I can run, which is surprising to me. So I'm going to start doing more of that. I really like that. I also had a very scenic route. It was right by the ocean, you know, in Lisbon. So Mm -hmm. it was lovely. So I'm going to try some of that in San Francisco. We'll see how it goes. And my second pick would be The Bear, this TV show that I watched recently, Mm -hmm. which I loved. It's about this chef um, that inherits uh, a sandwich shop in Chicago, and he's trying to make something great out of it. It's, It's an emotional one, but it's very cinematic, great vibes. Just loved it. Yep. So I... I went on a couple of trips to San Francisco when I was training for my marathon in 2019. And yeah, just running along the bay is really cool. In fact, Mm -hmm. it got really cold one of the times. I actually wound up stopping and buying a hoodie on my way back because I was freezing. Um, But it's also really fun if you can wind up over by the Golden Gate Bridge and just run as far across it as you want and run back. Um, So yeah, I recommend that you do that. If you're in San Francisco, and you're, you're getting out for runs, you definitely should just just run along the bay. Yeah. There's plenty of stuff to see that way. So. Yeah. I'm kind of excited to go to San Francisco because, you know, there is a red bridge in Lisbon and there is a red mm-hmm. bridge in San Francisco. So I'm actually bridging right. the bridges. <laughs> and I'm there you excited go. about that. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks for coming, Victoria. This was really fun. Thank you, guys. I felt welcomed. I felt home. It's great. Nice. Yeah, also recommend people go watch that uh, video for the Dev Propulsion Lab. And uh, yeah, till next time, folks, Max out.